0: Romans chapter 3. We will have this Sunday and next Sunday in chapter 3, and I'm going to warn you before I give you any other introduction that there is an unsatisfying conclusion to this section because there's not really a conclusion to this section. But at some point we have to stop. (laughs) I mean, at some point we have to go home and in order to make sense of everything, so there is a pause that's, it's sort of like a comma in the thought process, so we're just going to take it and that's where we're going to end today and then know next week we're going to basically pick up with pretty much the same idea and finish it out. The main reason we're going to take that comma is because Paul is diving into the objection portion of the program. So we have laid the foundation of the really, really bad news, which I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Um, for all the bad news we've covered in the last few weeks, today is the really, really, really bad news part. So in the objections, Paul's just going to like hammer you upside the head with the frying pan. Just, just in case you have a few spots that aren't lumpy yet, Paul is going to make sure he wax those with the frying pan and then you'll be good to go. Then I promise begins actually the ascent with the answering the good news in light of all of this bad news. Remember, we're, we're foundation building. So what is our foundation? Reality of the salvation from sin. The reality of the universality of sin, the faithfulness of God, and the lack of necessity of ethnic, how do I phrase this, Israelness. <laughs> okay? That's the ending of last week. What does that lack of ethnic necessity actually mean going forward? Would there possibly be pride in the Gentiles? Are they people? If they are people, then the answer to that question is, could they possibly sin in this way? The answer to the question is... Yes, yes, always. So, finishing the bad news, completing our foundation, and then moving through the train of thought. Also, the other warning lots of Old Testament stuff today. Just simply because um, I don't know if your Bible marks it out, but the NASB marks it out, and you should notice it on the screen. If you ever see, so like if your Bible does this, not that you can see all this, if you have really good eyes, notice how it gets indented on the paragraphs? If your Bible does that, that's a way of warning you Old Testament quotes. If everything is suddenly in all caps, that's not your Bible yelling at you. Stop thinking your Bible is texting you. That is your Bible telling you that it's an Old Testament quote. If you get the double whammy like I do, it's indented and it's all caps. Pay attention. There's actually something that's being built upon from prior. So then we move forward. So sound good? Let's dive in verse nine. I promise you we're going to get real far this morning. You ready? What then? Are we better than they? Well, remember, we got to stop right there. Who are they? Always, I asked this in a meeting once, got a great answer because I got, you can't possibly imagine this, but I used to get in trouble a lot in church, on staff. Yeah, no, me a troublemaker? Never. And I used to always get the nebulous because it was a, a good southern country church, so nobody ever wanted to offend anybody else, but we were all mad about stuff. So used to always get through, well, there are people who are upset and they don't like certain things. And I couldn't take it after a while. And finally in a meeting, I got up and go, who are they? <laughs> like, I need to know who they are so I can apologize. And I was given the greatest answer by someone who is just as, mar- just as much of a smart aleck as I am. And he goes, they are them, those that are not us. <laughs> like, okay. It's like, I, I mean, to reach more like, are they in the room with us? <laughs> Blink if you need help. So, in this instance, though, who are they? Well, you have to rewind to the beginning of this chapter. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? So, Since there is no salvific benefit to being an Israelite, the question would obviously be raised, what then, since the Israelite benefit, which was what we did last week, was that they received the covenants and they received the scripture, but they still have to enter into God's kingdom the same way as everybody else, what's the benefit there? And the answer is, okay, there isn't one. So wait a minute, does that mean, since we didn't have to go down that long and winding road, that we're actually better than they were? Hey, look at us, we've moved up in the world, go team. Well, you would see, you would think the answer would be obvious, but again, I have a working theory that has absolutely zero support, and that's the fact that Paul is surrounded in chapter 15 and 16 by like 27 people while he's writing this letter, and to this day, my theory operates under the assumption that since Paul dictates most of his letters, that there was like an argument breaking out as Paul's dictating this letter. Somebody's like, well, what about, okay, never mind, back up, insert... (laughs) And actually answer the objections as he goes, and it's part of the reason I think there are so many objections is, Paul is surrounded by Gentiles and Israelites and people who are rich and people who are poor and people who are thought well of and people who are looked down on, and you have the opportunity in Paul's ministry to answer all of these questions. Therefore, as he sits down to write this out systematically, all of these objections and questions are in the forefront of his mind. That's one of the reasons why this book is so rich in its answering and challenging of all the possible things. So are we better than they? Not at all. or we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. See so again, that's one of those duh moments of theology. We shouldn't have to be told that, but let's be honest. Sinful humanity. There's a lot we shouldn't have to be told. Like if you ever want to have some fun, this will be the, okay, this will show you how weird I am because I start off this, I start off this phrase with, if you ever want to have some fun, go home and actually pay attention to Leviticus. And like read it slowly, and it's it's like reading the back of the um, the Lysol jar when it goes like "Do not spray in mouth and eyes." Yeah, yeah but it's like you're like you're reading that going like "Don't drink." Oh, whoo, what? Mm. Well, always remember that every warning label is there because there was someone be like, "Hey, bleach is probably delicious." <sighs> Every law that's there in Leviticus is because humanity was going, well, you know, it's possible that maybe we, and God's in the corner going, no, stop it. Stop it. Okay. Write this one down. <laughs> so we read through some of the stuff in Leviticus and go, you had to be told not to do that? Yes, we had to be told not to do that. This is part of the lesson of humanity. We have to be told not to do a lot because when it comes to sin, our answer is always, yeah, sure. Why not? It can't be, but so bad. So if it's possible, we'll get it wrong. If we need to be, if there's a reminder that could be given, it's a reminder that should be given because remember what's what does this letter start out with the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about god is evident within them for god made it evident to them we know we're broken they know they're broken paul knows they're broken paul knows that they know that he knows that they're broken and just in case what are we going to say We've already charged that all are under sin. Why can we say this? Because again, the corruption reaches every level of humanity. And that's not just Paul talking. 1 John 5, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is again why boasting in the Christian life should just be anathema. It shouldn't be a thing if you fast forward towards the end of this chapter, Romans 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. No by a law of faith. This is the, the great uh, reminder from Ephesians 2. You have been saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God. This is not your doing. This is God's doing. It's one of the reasons why I always remind you that just your being here on a Sunday morning is a reminder that you're terrible at this. Because your declaration of faith in Christ is declaration of what? Hi, my name is Michael. I'm a sinner. If it's possible, Bad thoughts, bad actions, bad motives, working on it. <laughs> That's your declaration coming into the church. I don't have to have the argument. That's why I always laugh about when I talk about good southern country churches. Everybody knows the truth, but everyone wants to lie about it because, you know, we have reputations here. Come on now. What will the neighbors think? They won't come over for sweet tea and lemonade. How? What could be possibly be worse? <laughs> and this is the lie of society. See, see my two southerners are laughing because you're like, you've met those people. <laughs> My my wife from North Carolina and Becca from Louisiana is like, stop talking about my people. (laughs) Because every time I give an example like that, they're picturing someone and it hurts just a little bit more. (laughs) But this is what humanity does. This is our brokenness. And this is again why Paul has to remind from the very beginning. And just in case you want to accuse Paul of standing in the wrong place, verse 10 still exists as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So to bolster his case, Paul isn't going to rely on apostolic authority. He could, but he's not going to. He's going to rely on God's authority. He's going to build upon the Old Testament. So what is he quoting from? You see the the all caps again. That's not your Bible yelling at you. This isn't text language. This is your Old Testament quote. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And by the way, remember that verse. It's not going to go very far because verse 11 picks right up. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. This is a reminder of the problem in the need of the world and something that you should be reminded of every single day as you go out. See, this is the danger of where you live. So, I remind you that it does you no good to long for what might be, and it it does you no good to long for what has been because mainly reason, one, you don't know what's going to be, and two, what you think of what has been is probably a lie in the first place, and two, you're, you're not in that time. You weren't made for then, you were made for now. Do you know how I know you weren't made for now? You're here now. Amazing. It's not like God went to give you someplace and be like, oh no, they were supposed to be in 1842. What have I done? <laughs> No, no, you're here, you're now, you have been prepped for the here and the now. This is the world you live in, but you must live in it warily. We have a blessing and a curse, kind of like Israel from last week. We have a blessing of a Christian foundation and worldview in our history. Western civilization, what, what, what used to be the remains of like Western Europe, what used to be the remains of our country, were built upon a Christian foundation. Notice, I, notice what I didn't say. They were not built on Christianity. They were built on a Christian foundation, a way of thinking in an overarching worldview that had a Christian foundation, understanding that there is a God, there is something higher, however you seek to phrase that, whether you're a theist or a deist in a lot of our history or whatever moving forward. There's an undergirding of faith. That's helpful in that a lot of your laws are built upon that. A lot of your worldview is built upon that. It is not helpful because it lies to you, and it leads you to believe that there are people who are Christian who are not, simply because they live in a society that looks a little more Christian than other societies might. This is where the uh, the breakdown of our moral fabric in the last 20, 30 years, which, by the way, is probably not just the last 20, 30 years, but probably the last you know century or more, has actually been a blessing. It reveals the heart. It reveals the mind. And it reveals who's actually in and who's actually out. And it's not something that's unusual in history. Every time we think we have a pure society somewhere, we look around and realize, you know, there's an awful lot of sinners in this pure society. And they keep doing an awful lot of sinning. We're not as good as we thought we were. Okay. Start back over It go. Repent of this. Trust in Christ. Move forward. This is your lot in life daily. So remember this. As you go out into the world, stop assuming the pagans are good people. Stop assuming a lot of the Christians are great people. Still give them the benefit of the doubt if they name the name of Christ, but recognize that there are a lot of people who name the name who will hear from me, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. This is why I love going through that survey every year when they do the state of theology. Remember that earlier this year? And it's like the percentage of people who go to church once a week who believe Jesus is God and you're like, okay, that's gotta be like 97, 98%. It's like 74%. <laughs> what are we doing? What's, what does the church look like? This is the breakdown of your world. This is what it looks like when sin corrupts even the institutions because we didn't actually anchor ourselves. This is why I forever tell you. I hurt myself every week doing what? Stomping to give you an anchor to remind you that you stand here. Because what does the world do otherwise? Just moves along. And next thing you know, you look around and be like, how did we get here? Now stop again. Your hope for that anchor, your cure for that is to remember the gospel. Your cure for them as they have not lived in that is also what? To bring them the gospel that you are remembering. 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So, does that mean you look out at the world and go, Well, they can't understand this because they can't appraise spiritual things, therefore just forget them? Well, no. Why do you appraise spiritual things? Because you have been spiritually reborn. Gee, I wonder what we should be attempting to do for the world at large. What should be the goal of my discipleship? What should be the goal of my conversations? What should be the goal of my life? What should be the goal of every aspect of my living? Would maybe be to exalt Christ? This is when your Sunday school answer comes in. When you don't know what to do, who should you be serving? Jesus! (laughs) How now in this attitude of life? I don't know, figure that out. And this is why I I know you guys get so mad at me when I do this because I can't give you all the examples because I don't work where you work. I don't have the family that you have. I don't do the things that you do for hobbies. So you have to evaluate your world and go, how do I exalt Christ in this thing? How do I exalt Christ in that place? How do I exalt Christ with this person? Sometimes it's loving. Sometimes it's a little harsher. Sometimes it's confrontational. You have to figure that out. Apply the wisdom as you have it in the moment from the Spirit and trust that God is working in all of these things. And that's not a comfortable place to sit right now. But can I give you a promise? In the moments that you actually do it, it's a very comfortable place because you're actually sitting where God would have you to sit and doing what God would have you to do. It's frightening now. It's freeing then. And there's a great thing when you can look back and go, you know, I wish I'd said that better, but I'm still glad I said X, Y, or Z. It's the, uh, it's the old D.L. Moody quote, I like my way of doing something better than your way of doing nothing. <laughs> and it's why we should not let fear paralyze us and everything in life. Because if you're so terrified that I'm never going to say it right, I got really bad news for you. You're never going to say it right. I get in theological arguments with people and then go home in 20 minutes and go, oh my goodness, why didn't I just say this? Why didn't I use that as an example? But you know what? I at least said something. I at least stood for something. Rejoice there. Prepare for the next time and trust that God will carry you through either way. And always remember, it's never going to be good. This is part of the brokenness that's even in you as you are sanctified day by day. Being refined is it's never wise enough. It's never clear enough. It's never eloquent enough. And that's okay because it is Christ's accomplishment and not yours. So before we continue on, remember something I warned you about all the way back in chapter one. So let's see. Oh, you know what? I should do it like this. Pop quiz. I warned you weeks and weeks ago. That you should always keep what idea in the back of your mind as an overarching principle for the Book of Romans. Can anybody give me the one word? Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I had to at least get to the high note. It would have been so disappointing if I didn't. The sovereignty of God. Who is the accomplisher? Christ, who is the mover? Christ, who is the changer of the hearts of men? Christ, if you read Romans and forget that, oh wait, there, there is a God ruling and reigning over everything, you will read Romans and come up with some really, really weird stuff. I promise you that. I'm just giving you that reminder now. You know, it might be important in a minute. Might not. I'll let you choose accordingly. It's kind of like when your professor goes, you know, this might be on the quiz later. It might not be on the quiz later. You know what you should be doing? Write that down. <laughs> Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We know this is true of humanity. You can go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Um, if you've never listened to Handel's Messiah, you, you won't hear this in the high notes in my head like I do. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And by the way, if you never listened to Handel's Messiah, and I know it's Handel, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm an angry, ugly American Handel. <laughs> uh, that's always fun to listen to in the high notes, just because your brain starts doing this after a minute, and you, you can't forget, because... I See, I can even try years ago... Could have made a mockery of it and tried, but those we like sheep are so stinking high that it doesn't even sound like words. You have to actually know what they See, Cameron has sung it, and she's in the back like, oh, that's so much fun to do. And it's like, yeah, and it hurts my ears when you practice it. Stop it. <laughs> And that we like sheep having gone astray is a part of not just our thoughts, not just our lives, but the very motivations that we have. Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of of our iniquities. Now. Come back to that sovereignty idea. If that's true of humanity, why should we not just shake the dust from our feet, wipe our hands clean of everything, wander away and go form like a commune in the mountains somewhere and leave them alone? I mean, they did this for about a thousand years in Western Europe, you know, just form the monasteries, leave the pagans be and, you know, we'll just be our little righteous community and be left alone. This is where the sovereignty of God is helpful. What changed you? Who changed you? how bad were you? Who changes them? Remembering the sovereignty of God is not a cop-out. It's an encouragement that there is a God in heaven who can overcome and undo all of our unrighteousness. Therefore, as I look at the brokenness of the world, I do not lose hope because there is a God in heaven who can undo even that. So yes, when you turn on your news and go, oh my goodness, these people have gotten worse, rejoice. Because now, is the place where the power of God can be made manifest. Now is the place where the glory of God can shine brightly in the darkness. You have walked in with a shining light, not onto the sun, but into the darkest reaches of humanity. What will that light look like? This is your rejoicing. This is the reminder of who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and what he can accomplish. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This is what you do in your daily life, Christian. You seek to serve and honor the Lord who has redeemed you. Even in the midst of your sin, their sin, and everybody else's sin too. Because it is not an excuse. This is where the bad news of this portion of the letter becomes good news to those who are of faith. Because you see this brokenness and go, <laughs> That's not me anymore. And not only is that not me anymore, but the gospel and the proclamation of his salvation, it's not going to be you anymore in a minute either. <laughs> And this is the joy that we have as we go through. I've lost my place, sorry. Verse 13. (sighs) Paul can't ever leave, like, good enough alone. Like, I would have moved on to the good news by now. I would love to move on to the good news right now. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Well, tell us how you really feel, Paul. That, that's right up there with John the Baptist when the Pharisees and religious leaders are coming out to him and he calls them a brood of vipers. It's, like, it's like, Isn't that special? How are you so nice to everybody? Ah. Now, this is also part of your Old Testament quote fest. Psalm 5. O oh Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O oh God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgression, transgression. Transgressions thr- thrust them out. See I'm trying to get from transgressions to thrust, and my brain's not doing it. for they are rebellious against you. That's part of the quote, Psalm 140: "Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars, they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Now I'm going to give you two notes real quick here.) <laughs> One, just because there is so much quoting in this section, it'll be worth covering. Have you noticed thus far that the way that Paul quotes it in the New Testament is not exactly how it is given to us in the Old Testament? Have you picked up on that? Okay. Don't panic. Your New Testament is translating into English from the Koine Greek that Paul wrote it, okay? Okay. Your Old Testament is translating what has been handed down as the Masoretic text. It is translating into English from Hebrew. Paul, as a New Testament, well, Christian and a New Testament time Jew, probably didn't do most of his daily reading of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. He would have been doing most of his reading of the Septuagint. And because I always remember the kids thing, my thought is always, I did not sneeze. (laughs) The, um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's why when Paul is writing the Greek from the Greek translation, in his Greek he's actually writing in Greek. But when we translate it into English, it's a slightly different translation than when you translate the Hebrew into English. Same meaning, there's almost nowhere where you're going to have major questions about that. I just like to cover that so that if anybody tries to trip you up, oh yeah, well Paul's quoting from a different Bible than the Old Testament, so you don't know what you're talking about. Neh. It's not that big of a deal. There's a couple of places where it might make some interesting conversations that I might enjoy and you would go, do we care? And the answer would be no. So, well, I take it back. Lou would probably be like really into it as well. Lou's like, yes, yes, this is, this is my wheelhouse. So, for, other than that, it's not a big deal. That's one. Two, don't use your Bible like this, okay? You're not an apostle. Uh, let me say that in English. You're not an apostle. You're not the Apostle Paul. I got stuck between apostle and Paul and just, so he's an apostle, Maybe if it's from Minnesota, I could call him an apostle. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It is what it is. Don't pick and choose your quotes. We call that proof texting. It's bad. This is why I typically, more often than not, I try to quote from longer passages so that you actually get the context of the of what I'm trying to give you to show you that your Bible's talking about all of these things. One, you, you're not allowed to do this. You're not an apostle. You're not Paul. You don't get to do this. That's one. Two, however, there is actually benefit in the way that Paul is doing this by by picking and choosing out his quotes. He's utilizing the entirety of Scripture and showing that. Multiple Psalms, multiple passages of the Old Testament are going together to describe the same thing. This is part of the lesson that I forever tried to give you guys. When you are reading through your Bible, when you get to the end, what's the answer? When you get to the end, if you got to anything other than Jesus, you got the wrong thing. This is a help to you as you're reading through. So when you read your Psalms. And you're going, well, this is a happy psalm, and I like this one. You're like, there's, there's the joyful ones, you know, the song of ascents, and you're praising God for his mighty works, and everybody's in such a good mood, and we're all so happy-go-lucky. And then you flip over three pages, and it's like, Lord, bash them against the rocks and crack their skulls. And you're like, well, that escalated quickly. Um, how do I make sense of that? Well, it's the same work of God as being celebrated. Because remember, go back to your prophetic works. Every time you find messages on salvation, you'll find messages on what? Judgment. And every time you find prophetic messages on judgment, you will find messages on what? Salvation. Two sides of the same coin. Christian, your salvation that you rejoice in, that you long to be finally revealed by Christ in that second coming, is the judgment of the world. The judgment that you fear will fall upon them is your salvation. They go together. So when you read the joyous, when you read the rejoicing and the salvific works of God, you go, yes, that is fulfilled in Christ. When you read God crushing the enemies, yes, that is fulfilled in Christ. Remember, that's the sash and the sword and the flaming eyes and the white hair and the wiping out the armies thing. That that all is coming to pass. This helps you make sense of your Old Testament and how you can rejoice even in the stuff that feels like you shouldn't be rejoicing Yes, this is still the work of God. As a Christian, being sanctified, rejoicing in the salvation that God has given to you, you should want sin gone. It's good that you do. Just always remember that means you will rejoice when sin is undone. You don't now because you still stand in the presence of a lot of your sin. And you probably still have one in the corner that you're believing, like, my precious. One, kill that one too always have to make sure I remind you of that. But two, remember that that's because of where you are now. There is coming a day when the scales will be removed, the veil will be lifted, and you will see clearly. And you will see the righteousness of God, and you will see the work that he has accomplished, and you will look at your sin and everybody else's sin and go, burn it! Burn it with fire. Get rid of it, and you will rejoice when he actually accomplishes. And this is part of your message in your Old Testament. It's not just, oh, God is redeeming Israel, and the Psalms are so beautiful, and they make me feel good. It's God is judging and destroying sin. And that is a good thing because the alternative would be to leave us in it and then judge and destroy us in the process. Your salvation is the judgment of sin. Always remember that. Now, all of that to go, is this new? Paul, the only person to be like, you know, the sinful mouth says bad things. I mean, we did this in James, right? James, I think summarizes this well. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now, this is an easy pop quiz. Paul is writing this. James has written that. So let me see. James would have written that somewhere in the ballpark of 8 to 12 years before Paul is writing this. To whom are Paul and James writing? Christians don't forget that. All of this bad news we've been covering in Romans, all of those condemnations that James has in the first three chapters of his letter are written to Christians dealing in the world, being overcome in certain instances, and more often than not, overcoming their sin in the world. This is not just a, oh yeah, you get them, get them, get them. This is a, oh, stop getting me. <laughs> He's talking to them. He's talking to us. This is one of the reasons why Scripture endures. This is the Holy Spirit accomplishing two things at the same time. Is I can write a letter to the Romans that will be beneficial to the, what would we be? Would be the Calvarians? (laughs) There we go. We're going to go with it. Technically, I guess because of where we are, we'd be the Rockfordians. But that doesn't sound good, does it? Doesn't sound as biblical. Not as much fun. (laughs) So once upon a time, I could have said I was actually a Galatian. I went to, the, I went to a Galatia Baptist church, <laughs> which was always fun Whatever you'd call someone because that was the, um, the mailing address that I used for a while because it was easier to, have, easier to have my mail sent to the office than it was to the house. And so you'd tell people, you'd say Galatia Road, which is where the church was because that was what the community crossroads was. Spell that like in your Bible, huh? Never mind. <laughs> T-I-A, T-I-A, there you go. Now, why is this warning given to the church? Why is it given to Christians? Because again, the reminder of who you are and how you got there. Why are we, why Christian? What does the word even mean? That's actually a good question for you guys. What does Christian actually mean? See, we do that. The the, the literal, Christ-like, the literal is little little Christ. (laughs) That doesn't mean you're supposed to have a little Christ. That's what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be like a kid following his dad around. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be dad. <laughs> it's like little you. It's your mini, you, you are Jesus's mini-me. There, I said it out loud. <laughs> you thought it, I just said it. Doesn't make me worse than you. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> Why are you supposed to be like that? Because the old heart that was you has been cut out and removed, and the new heart has been implanted. The old mind that was you has been redeemed and is thinking new thoughts, and that is changing the way that you live. However... Keep in mind those are active verbs, changing, renewing. You are not there yet. There's coming a day when you will be, but remember as you enter into this world that these are reminders not just for the them, but for the you, because this is what we have to remember to encounter and attack as we go out. Because let's be honest, very rarely do you go into a room and people change for you. Typically what happens when we encounter more and more of the world? We changed to look like it. I always remember years ago, there was a, um, Cameron used to have a, a, a weird little family dynamic, not her family, but her um, her dance instructor when she was a, a child and a teenager, was a, a former dancer, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, back about that straight. <laughs> just cause you know, old ballerinas just by nature stand like this, they can't help themselves. But she was the wife of a uh, funeral director. <laughs> So dance studio in the back, funeral parlor in the front. <laughs> and we were there for a visitation for Cameron's grandfather. And it was so fascinating just to watch this room, but 75, 80 people for the visitation standing around. The, night, the, fun- the visitation was the evening, the funeral was the next day. Because people are just kind of doing what we do. And how do we stand when it's the end of a long day? And we're standing around talking. And then Helen would walk through the room. And again, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, woman who walks like this. And you knew where she was in the room because everywhere she went, the whole room got taller. Because you'd feel bad if she'd stand next to you if you were slouching or leaning because she was just so, like, like my back hurts to watch her stand up. But as she would move through the room, you knew where she was because as she got to people, they would stand next to her and then they'd stand up and then she'd move along and they'd slouch again and then the next group. See, that's what it should look like for the christian in the world but let's be honest what typically happens we start out here and then we're here and then we're here and then we're here and next thing you know as we're moving through the room what's different we are now stop why were you standing up why were you different because of christ what's gone wrong I've forgotten Christ. I've remembered who I was too much. Now, how do you go back? Remember, I read this last week, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Your Bible, what Paul is describing here, what your Old Testament is describing, is not some alien world. It's the world we inhabit. Your goal going into it is not, no, 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 I am going to overcome. I am going to accomplish. I will stand firm. You're done. You just lost right there. I'm going to remember Christ. I'm going to remember the work of the Spirit. I'm going to remember the promises that He has given to me. I'm going to remember the hope that He has placed in me. And as I do that, you will just find yourself standing. You won't know why. That's the fun example of, of, the, 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 of Helen, the dance teacher. Why does she stand like that? She doesn't know. <laughs> I made a joke. I actually picked on her about it. Can you imagine me? I made a joke and picked on somebody just a little bit. And She came by and I told her, I was like, can, can you do me a favor? Like, be honest. When we all leave, you just go, ah, and like walk around the house like a jellyfish. <laughs> And she goes, no, you'd think that, but it's actually just ingrained. She doesn't know why she stands like that. It's what, that's what 65 years of dance and you know, trying to be graceful does to you. You just, it's by nature. She walks around the room, talks to you, and hands you the box of Kleenexes, and it, you know, looks like a Disney movie is about to break out or something. You know, someone's going to be singing in the corner. You're laughing, but I'm right. <laughs> She's like, oh, here, let me get you the Kleenexes. <laughs> Because it's just who she is. Christian, this is your Christian life. It's almost an accident. You remember Christ. You remember the work. You remember the accomplishments. You remember the situation. You seek to glorify Christ in the midst of this, and you will find yourself standing. This is the simplicity and the complexity of Christ all at the same time. Because you can't. You can't do all of this. But as you remember him in his works, he builds this into you. That's again, the why you need the reminders and why Paul has not stopped reminding you. Verse 15. So, not only do they talk like this, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Well, don't they just sound lovely? These are the people you want to invite over for dinner, right? (laughs) No. Again, Psalm 10. The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceits and an oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. This is part of the foundation that Paul is trying to get across. And let's just fast forward real quick because there's both a cause and effect in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's both the cause of all of these problems and it's the effect Of all of these problems. It's again Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Now, I have given you some of the answer, well, most of the answer as we have gone through all this, just because I can only be so negative for so long. Just, just despite me not being the happy-go-lucky person, I can only give you guys so much negativity on a Sunday morning. Why has Paul done this? Three chapters of basically the golden corral frying pan going, and that's the sinfulness, and that's the sinfulness, turned uh, about three quarters of the way, thank you, new spot, that's sinfulness, and just, like, you look like, what's that, Was that, the, the little dog when the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he keeps whacking him with the frying pan and he keeps getting all the different lumps on his head. Yeah. Why, why do the, why does the Roman church look like that? Why do this? Again, Christian, if it's possible for humanity to corrupt what God has said, will they? Yes. If it's possible for humanity to lie to itself about its present condition, will it? Yes. Here's your reminder. Paul spends this time because if you do not lay out what the bad news is and exactly how much it corrupts, the good news will just be taken and be like, well, of course it's good. Look how much God loves us. Why wouldn't he? Have you met me? We're phenomenal. We're spectacular. Oh, wait, no, we only have a little bit of good news and a whole lot of... (sighs) And by the way, not the only place he does this. Ephesians 4. I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of that which is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have, been giving themselves, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, here's your summary. Chapter 1. We shake our fist at God, and our hearts are hardened. In chapter 2, we see that tr- see, what, see how that is true, and that it is also true of Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3, we see that it's true even if we know better. The Jew knew better at the beginning of chapter 3. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the exclamations, they had the promises, and yet how did they live? The Christians in Rome should know better, and yet what's the reminder of the world in which we inhabit now that you have laid that foundation, the turn can be made. And I've warned you already, we won't finish it, okay? I'm, I mean, we're, we're, we're a little bit more, but we're not going to finish it. But this is where the turn is made, and Paul begins to now ascend. So we basically we drove off the cliff, we have hit the bottom, all the bad news has been given to you. Now it is time to actually build on this foundation. Now that you see the world rightly, you see your place in the world rightly, and understand how Christ is building you up in it. So, quick question before we do that. How many cures are there? First, uh, first Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I tell you that so that you don't get this next section wrong. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Theologically speaking, this is what we call the first use of the law. It's a revelation. It is not the cure. It is basically taking a mirror and holding it up to whatever you are dealing with. Sometimes you're dealing with someone else. More often than not, when you hold up the mirror, you should be dealing with who, though? You, yeah, that's why mirrors exist. I can see you, I don't need, unless, you, unless you've done that thing, hey, you got a spot right here, and they're like, no, 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 look, right there, man, right there. So unless you're doing that, you don't usually need a mirror for someone else. Holding up the law is not the cure, okay? I know you know this, I know we've covered this before, But holding up the law to the world is not the cure. And when we treat it like the cure, we do the gospel message a disservice because all we've done is given them half the message. You don't want to be Jonah, okay? What was the prophet Jonah's message when he finally got to Nineveh? We'll leave out how he got to Nineveh. You know how that story goes. 40 days and the city will be overthrown. 39 days and the city will be overthrown. Like There's no good news in that, it's just what? You people are all going to die. They repented in spite of Jonah, not because of him necessarily. It's a demonstration that who is saving? God is saving. Not Jonah, not the Ninevites, but God. That's part of what's going on here. Paul's first move is to hold up. If you only give the bad news, you're not giving both sides of the coin. You're only giving the destruction. You're not giving the grace that goes along with it. Now, Sorry, I almost forgot to hit the mute button before I coughed in the microphone. That would have been lovely, wouldn't it? First use, not unusual, things like John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. This is Jesus' warning to the religious leaders. You guys think you find your salvation in scripture. You're supposed to find your salvation in... God, he continues on at the end of that chapter, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I've given you this example before, but... Um, read Pilgrim's Progress, it'll do you good. It's actually one of the scenes in Pilgrim's Progress, is the Christian, whose name is Christian, is walking to his salvific home, and he's walking along the road and thinks everything is fine, and all of a sudden someone who's moving so fast he can't even see, just wipes him out. Basically, like, turns into a middle linebacker and tackles him. (laughs) And he gets up, and then the guy hits him again and hits him again, and the name of the gentleman who hits him is? Oh, come on, take a guess. Moses. Because he's the law, and the law condemns. And what is Christian's protection against the condemnation of the law? It is the fact that he has come through the wicked gate. He has come through by the work of Christ. He is no longer condemned because his fulfillment is found in christ that's part of the warning that jesus is giving in john 5 you guys keep searching scripture you keep making lists you keep coming up with ways that you think you're going to save yourself you're going to present that list one day at the gates and it's not going to be peter standing there like in all the jokes it's going to be moses going yeah you got that one wrong yep got that one wrong yep you got that one wrong oops what you think is your salvation is your condemnation remember this is my fun trivia question the law of exodus was given to what kind of people A redeemed people. They weren't given the law so they could be taken out of Egypt. They were given the law after having been taken out of Egypt. The law was for their sanctification. The problem is they started trying to undo the salvation. They forgot the first step. We'll just keep all the sanctification parts. That's why Jesus tells you just heaping burdens upon people. Take the pagan, take the unbeliever, and try to have them live like a Christian. What will it look like? You wonder why they hate us. We try to impose, that's when you get the, you're imposing your morality. No, 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 I'm imposing some morality. Remember that part. Every law is a moral, has a moral component. Just a question of whose moral morality is behind it. But they say you're imposing your morality because they don't want to live like us. Why not? Because their minds aren't renewed. Because their hearts haven't been changed. Because they haven't met the Savior we missed a step. Let's go back and start over again. That's part of what Paul is doing here, reminding you of where the condemnation lies, reminding you of the can't that you can do, that you cannot accomplish. And by the way, if we're honest, the law does accomplish. Paul will build on this later. We'll get to this one of these weeks. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. That's part of that lying to yourself. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's summarize that real quick. You didn't want the cookie. You didn't even know the cookie existed until someone told you you couldn't have the cookie. And then what did you think about? Cookie, cookie, cookie. That's what the law did. The law reveals the, the stain of original sin that exists on humanity. Is You're living your life and the law says, do not covet your neighbor's property. And you went... Well, But he's got really nice stuff. And I want really nice stuff. Do not lie. But but, but she asked me if she looked fat in those jeans. What do you want me to say? (laughs) Some of you are like, um, um, um. (laughs) The truth, however uncomfortable it may be. Ladies, I always give my wife this warning. Don't ask questions you don't know the answers to. (laughs) In all seriousness, though. The law is revelatory. It shows you the brokenness of you. It's not that you weren't sinning before God said don't sin. It was when God said don't do that, you are like, but I really, really want to. Because your, your sinful nature then looked at that commandment and went, oh man, you just take away all my fun. I can't lie. I can't cheat. I can't steal. I suppose next I can't kill anybody. Oh, so no fun. <laughs> This is the brokenness of humanity, and this is what the law does, and this is its first use is it shows you your problem. That's what Paul is doing here. And by the way, that's part of the turn. That's part of the good news. This is the Ray Comfort method, which I always laugh that we call it that because it's not the Ray Comfort method. And Ray Comfort will tell you it's not the Ray Comfort method, because it's built off of scripture. And it continues verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Exactly. So you look, the mirror has been held up and you recognize, oh, not looking as good as I thought I did. Okay, now what? Because there's nothing good that dwells in me and there's nothing good that dwells in this world, but there is a good God in heaven who has done what? Who has given a savior and has pointed me in his direction. This is the purpose of the law in this regard, is after your sin is revealed, what's what's our math equation? For every look at yourself, take what? Take 10 looks at Christ, because that's what the law is supposed to do when your sin is revealed. This is part of that section I was giving you earlier. Look at the world and see the problem. Look at you and see the problem. How do I avoid it? By remembering who Christ is and what he has done, why I stand and why I care, how he has redeemed me, how he has changed me, how he has empowered me moving forward, is keep my eyes focused on Christ, because that keeps my anchor in the ground. And by the way, not new for Paul, Galatians 2. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And he continues on in chapter 3 of Galatians. Scripture has shut everyone under sin, so that by so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now, we're gonna pause there, because even though Paul is done, you see what I mean when I say like we gotta go home at some point? <laughs> This begins the ascent. Built on what? Better yet, built on who? Because all the problems, all the brokenness, all the wrath of God, all the corruption of humanity, all the lack of righteousness is cured not in us, not in us knowing better, but in Christ. His sacrifice, His righteousness, and the Holy Spirit empowering His people to move forward. And that's what the rest of the letter builds upon because, Christian, that's what the rest of your life is supposed to be built upon. Looking back and going, ooh, that was ugly. The example from last week was a swamp that you have been pulled out of. But now looking forward and realizing that as ugly as that was, it cannot compare to the beauty of the work of God that is before me and the joy that he has put me in as he is bringing me to his kingdom, as he is accomplishing all of these things. That's what Paul will build out because that's what the Christian life should be about. So again, look at yourself. Look at the brokenness. See the breakdowns and then remember what was your cure what will be their cure, and how do you proclaim that goodness and mercy in every avenue of your life? Because this is your anchor, and this is your hope in your world each day. Let's pray.